today, and we celebrate that God gives and brings new life. It reminds us of the hope of the gospel, and so we do thank the, the modeling of the mothers that are a part of our faith family, and for those of you who have been impacted by your mother who has modeled graciousness and uh, the, the role of even the church to how we respond to Christ. We've seen that model through many of the, the, the mothers in the room. And so we just thank you for that. And we celebrate you today. We don't want it to go without saying, it goes without saying, but we want to say it. So thank you for being uh, here this morning and celebrating with us. And if you have a copies of, God, of God's word, I would love for you to join me in the 14th chapter of the book of Luke is where we're going to spend our time together. Last week, one of our other elders, Brady Rainus, shared how from Luke 13, we, Jesus talks about how in our pursuit of him as his disciples, as we walk after Jesus as his disciples, we often can allow barriers to creep in that can keep us from a full-out devotion to Jesus, right? That you and I can allow barriers to come in the way of us being able to truly follow him. And we see that through these barriers, he showed it through two parables. Jesus would give two parables. He would give the parable of this, of this great banquet, and he would give this parable of a wedding feast. And he would, he would conclude by saying that ultimately Jesus, uh, Brady would say that ultimately Jesus has overcome these barriers through the cross. That you and I no longer have to be limited by these barriers because Jesus has destroyed them and tore them down because of the cross. And through this, we see that ultimately Jesus is going relentlessly after our hearts. That Jesus wants your heart. More than anything else, more than any other thing, he wants the complete, undeniable control and devotion of your heart. One of the greatest challenges to following after Jesus and a barrier that I believe that many have trouble ever overcoming is to completely abandon all for Jesus is that he doesn't just want your external activities. Jesus did not die just to redeem your activities. He doesn't want just your external activity because he knows that if he gets your heart, he will get those also. That if he can get your heart, he is going to get your activities on such great levels. So Jesus is sitting around the dinner table with some dudes on the Sabbath, some Pharisees, and he's, he's sitting there with them and he, he drills down to the heart of this idea by saying that for many, for many, the reality is, is that when Jesus comes after our hearts, we will make all kinds of excuses for why we can't give up those things that we have literally put a death grip on. We put a death grip on it in exchange for what Jesus is calling us to when, we, when he unapologetically pursues our hearts. Well, in Luke 11, Jesus was, was again in another instance eating at the home of one of the Pharisees. I mean, these guys were glutens, uh, gluttons, not glutens. They were, they're gluten-free. These guys were gluttons for punishment because they just kept inviting Jesus over. I'm telling you, if I'm one of these guys and you keep coming over to my house and ripping me, I ain't inviting you over anymore, okay? We're going to have a peaceful meal. But these guys are just always sitting around with Jesus eating a meal and reclining at the table. And Jesus, in this instance, in, in Luke 11, doesn't wash his hands, which was absolutely disgusting to the Pharisees. And Jesus says, listen, bro, he said, you tithe your mint, and you tithe rue, and you tithe your herbs, and you give a tenth of your spices, but he says, yet your heart is not captured by me. He said, you neglect justice and love for me. So your activities look like you are giving even tithing your spice rack. And he compares those who have this right outward activity, he compare, but, but have an inward condition. He compares those to a tomb. 
He says, outwardly, things look really, really nice. You're doing all that right, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And he would compare that to them. I find it quite humorous that in our culture, in our church strategies, are, are usually centered around the idea to attract people today. But yet, and Jesus would have been the worst at it. Because often, a lot of conversations he would have, like we will see this morning, it ended with someone leaving him because the calling was too great on their life. And so this morning, we will see that Jesus has gotten up from the table and left out, and he is drawing huge crowds. It is massive. It's like a, a rock star mode. People are just marveling at Jesus. Whether they believe he is who he says he is or not, his activity and his outward expression, they're just marveled at what he's doing. He is doing miracles, and he is doing all these miraculous things, and people want to get a glimpse of this guy that's causing such a stir. His teachings were so radical and so intriguing. And Jesus would proceed to break down some misconceptions about what it means to truly follow after him. And actually some temptations that if we aren't careful, we can give into that can keep us from following him like a true disciple. When we hear the word temptation, our minds instantly drift towards temptation to do bad things, right? To the negative, we think temptation, and so we think lust and pride and bitterness and uh, envy and all those things. We're tempted to do evil but by engaging in evil stuff. That's kind of our mindset about that. We know what is right to do, and yet we choose something evil. But the type of temptation that Jesus is going to confront in his teaching this morning is the danger that we can take in make, taking good things. We have celebrated some good things today, but the temptation is in taking good things and making them ultimate taking good things and making them ultimate things that are pure and beneficial yet when elevated too high when we put them up too high can actually be an obstacle to us following Jesus so Jesus was has a warning for us today a very timely and providential word that we must be very careful to not take what is good and beautiful and destroy it so I want you to join me and let's read together in Luke 14, beginning with verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes out against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. God, may you give us a word from this today. Father, may you just surround us this morning and block out anything that is distracting us so that, God, we may see you this morning through this text. May we not downplay the, the intensity of what you're teaching here, 
but may we focus solely in on you this morning, God, that you may be glorified in us. God, expose things in us that need to be exposed. And we just love you. Thank you. Be our teacher, Father. Amen. So as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, we have been systematically walking through Luke, just taking it as it comes, just walking through the book. And so on Mother's Day, I get the passage that says to hate your mother. I was like, wow, God, you just have a great way of uh, laying things out, right? So I, I, I pulled it out last weekend and began to read ahead. And I was like, okay, so, so it's Mother's Day. And we we're saying, unless you hate your mother, you're not a follower. So now obviously te- Jesus is teaching all over the New Testament the complete opposite. So we have to do some work in this passage. Jesus has taught us so far that we need to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. We, are, we, we have to bless our enemies. We, have to love, we are to love our spouses. So what is happening here? Jesus is using a very abrasive language to drive home for us very intensely on this idea that good things elevated to ultimate, inferior things elevated to superiority can be dangerous. So I want us to look at some of these temptations, some temptations to us just recklessly abandoning an all for Jesus. Good things that when elevated too high can become temptations for us. I think from this passage, the first thing we see uh, is family. There are two dates that are forever, that have forever created for me a tension with this idea. December 28th of 2002, January 23rd of 2007. For some reason that I am often still blown away by, Carmen Trigg agreed on December 28th of 2002 to spend the rest of her life by my side. There's no greater joy to me next to my personal relationship with Jesus that I get in life than knowing that she is going to do life with me forever. And I think back and I still sometimes cannot believe that she knew who I was and agreed to this thing. You know, this was not, there wasn't an arranged marriage, okay? She agreed on her own accord. It just blows me away. And then on January 23rd of 2007, two little girls at the same time, were placed in my arms for the very first time and wrecked me forever. From the moment that I looked into their little faces in that operating room, I knew that the temptation to make them ultimate in my life would forever be a struggle of mine. Now we know from this passage that Jesus is not saying that we hate our spouses, we hate our parents, we hate our children, but Jesus wants to expose the tendency that we often have to take what is a wonderful gift to us a beautiful gift from God and make it a higher priority than we do him. The reality is, and I don't want to soften the intention of Jesus here, he says to the crowds that if your love and devotion to me is not greater than your love and your devotion to family, you aren't walking as my disciple. That's just true talk. Jesus is laying it out there. He is jealous and he is relentless and he wants your heart, not your activity. He wants your first fruits, not your leftovers. He wants it all. And so what we naturally do in our minds is we instantly begin justifying. We say, I know what he says here, but God, how about this? We'll give a little more time to you. How about that? We'll slow the kids down just a bit to make more time to spend on you. And I believe that Jesus wants us to hear this morning. He wants your heart. He demands that he is primary in your life. And this is the beauty of a relationship with Jesus. 
Jesus does not want just to be number one in your life, followed by a laundry list of things that we prioritize behind him. But Jesus wants to be number one and holistically saturate every part of your being. That's what his desire is. Not that he just says, all right, we're going to give you the most and then we're going to isolate you from the rest of life. No, Jesus says, I want to be priority in your life and then I want to saturate the very nature of life as you know it. So he wants to be your priority and this will shape the way that you love your family members. When Jesus is priority, this will shape the way you deal with your in-laws or your insane siblings. And I know for some of you, both groups can be absolute maniacs, okay? So how can we do this? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. He's primary. This will shape the way that you disciple your children. Why? Because your ultimate gain is not obedient, submissive children who get along. But the ultimate gain is that for them to love God with their entire being. That's our primary goal. This is going to shape the way in which you treat your spouse. Because no longer do you conditionally love them. Or do this conditional deal where you will respond to them if they will keep up their end of the bargain. No, your love for them is so much sweeter and deeper because of your love for Jesus. That is manifested in your marriage and your relationships. The family unit is to be a glimpse, a tangible expression of the gospel. So watch how this becomes problematic in your family structure when this is all out of whack. You know, husbands, if you look at your spouse and you are looking for her to fulfill you and be the source of your joy and peace, then you are setting her up to fail. And you are setting yourself up for long days of disappointment. Why? Because she was not created to be that source for you. She is going to have bad days and she is going to disappoint you and she's going to snap at you. It's going to happen. She was never intended to be the source of your joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. You know, wives, if you're you're doing this whole like Jerry Maguire deal and you're you're buying this Hollywood mistruth that he's the one that completes you, then you're going to be disappointed because he is broken. He is in need of Jesus. He cannot meet your needs the way that Jesus can. If singles, if you are looking for a companion to be the source of lasting peace and the end of your loneliness, then you are going to suck the life out of every person you are in a relationship with because they were not created to be that for you. You are putting a huge barrier to intimacy in your relationship because you are placing unrealistic expectations on the other person. Now, I'm not saying, girls, that you just settle because all guys are idiots. And guys, I'm not saying to have no standards. And husbands, I'm not saying to not sell out to the pursuit of holiness or wives to just write off everything to sin. Nor am I saying that that when Jesus is primary in your life, what I'm saying through the midst of this is, is that Jesus is primary in your life. Your passions and your choices in relationships should be and will be absolutely impacted and deepened to levels that you have never been When we allow Jesus to be number one, you will get a true picture of love. So look what happens then. This this is where it kind of gets tough. So when your relationship is off with your spouse, what do you do? You take the unfulfillment that has caused deep disappointment and we can often then dump it on our children. 
And we place our children on the throne and we worship them instead. So we've gotten to this place where our spouse has, has, has unfulfilled and so, we, okay, well, let's just have kids and we'll just dump all this source of joy on them. Maybe they'll bring that lasting joy. And let me just say, if you have made your children your God and allowed them to be of greater importance to you than your relationship with him, then you have placed them in a position that they do not belong. And you have abandoned God's command on your life to raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And you end up making their happiness and fulfillment the determining factor of the rhythm of your family. And this is idolatry. Parents, myself included, are you modeling for your children what a rhythmic life looks like that has Christ at the center? Or by the craziness of life, are you teaching them to worship other things besides God? You know, I love sports. I love hobbies. I love having our children active in things. But hear me this morning. Don't model for them that these things can have priority over their relationship with God and lead them down a lifetime of adultery and unfulfilled expectations and then expect them to get it as adults. You're modeling for them at a very early age what needs to have priority family, and I include myself in this, sometimes one of the best things we can do for our children's good is to say no to some things. Will it upset them? Yes. Do you ever remember as a kid being told no to some cool activity for the sake of sanity in the family and being like, well, that's, that's a good idea. That's rational thinking. No. We're like, man, golly. But hear me. Jesus says here in this passage to say yes to me. And no to anything that is taking away from our devotion to him. As parents, we need to focus on the priority of raising our children up to see God as primary. If we model for our kids that all of the peripheral things we engage in are primary and church involvement and mission and hospitality gets the leftovers, then they will grow up believing and modeling this in their life. So our children need to be engaged in things. Hobbies are awesome. I love sports. But we must be sure that as parents, we have not built a golden cow for our children to bow before and worship. There's a second thing we see in verse 27 as he's teaching. And that is another temptation to making something that is good ultimate is self. Self. Look back at verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross come after me cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean here when he, says, when he says, unless we take up our cross, we cannot follow him? It must have been terribly confusing to the disciples because we understand Jesus on the cross. We look back to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but Jesus is foreshadowing what is about to take place. And he tells them, you got to take up your cross and follow me. And what Jesus wants to deliver to us and to them is the understanding that there has to be a dying self. Self no longer is the gauge by which we prioritize and make decisions around. We die to self. In Luke 9, Jesus would say it this way, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, one of the obstacles to the abandonment of self is the misinterpretation that we have between happiness and joy. I want to talk about this for just a moment. We have this misconception between what happiness and joy means, and this drives down to the heart of our reason for a lot of our selfishness. We live in a world that says, just be happy, whatever makes you happy. Your personal happiness is your goal 
and desire. Now listen, happiness is a good thing. I want you to picture for a moment your happy place when things are perfect. It is 75 degrees with no humidity. You are hanging outside with nothing to do. Your kids are actually minding you and not fighting with each other. You've got money in the bank. Your bills are paid. Your wife is just killing it on Proverbs 31. She is just clicking. It is awesome. Picture that. That's good. That's, you enjoy that. That's happiness. But here's the thing about happiness. Happiness can be dashed with one phone call. Happiness can be dashed with one bad choice. Last night, two blocks away from here, happiness was dashed by a bad choice. And you know, unless you are completely abnormal, when difficulty comes our way, so often goes your happiness. It's gone. You know, and as followers of Jesus, you know that deal we try and do when we find out that a family member has cancer or we, we get the notice that we have lost our job or we find out that our spouse has been unfaithful. You know, the thing, this Christian thing we often do is we say, you know, you know, God's got this. Don't let it get to you. But the reality is it stinks. Happiness is shattered. It completely sucks the winds out of the sails and destroys happiness. But joy, on the other hand, joy is what allows us to see the purpose that God is working all things together for the good of those who loved him and who are called according to his purpose. It allows you, when your knees are cut out from under you, to be able to pick up your cross and deny self and continue following him. Self always says, if you aren't happy, it is not worth it. But joy says, I am God and I am worth it and I am in control even in unhappiness. In John 15, Jesus is teaching about being a branch that is grafted in the vine and the importance of abiding in him. And he says these words, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Listen to this. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be made in you and that your joy may be full. Joy. Listen to me this morning. God's ultimate desire is not to make you happy. He has come to fill you with fullness of joy. Great differences. And do you see what happens then? When our joy is rooted in Christ, when the negative things happen, we don't have to say, well, I'm no longer happy, so I'm no longer with you. No, we find joy in knowing that whatever God is doing, he is a trustworthy God who loves us and who is faithful to his word. And if he says that he is working all things together for the good of me, those who love him, then he is working all things together for our good. And so even in the unhappy times and even in the happy times, I have a sustainable joy that the fusion of those things together are what God is using for my good. And that is what allows us to be able to elevate him to ultimate. Say, God, you are so worthy no matter what happens in life because you are working all things so that I may experience and feel the fullness of joy. Then there's a final thing that we see. Verses 28 through 33, he gives two stories. And that is that a temptation that we may elevate is our inability, if you will, to persevere. I want to break this down just a little bit. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this one because Brady 
talked so well last week through some barriers like this that disrupt our passionate pursuit of Jesus. But I do want to see us, us to see something this morning from these stories. Jesus says that when you follow him, you must consider the cost of what he is calling you to. We come to Jesus on his terms, not our terms. There are not multiple levels of choice in our commitment that are allowable in the kingdom. It's not like he says, would you like package A, B, or C, depending on your level of willingness to commit to me. No. There are no multiple levels. Jesus doesn't call us to give up more than others as comparison, but he says, I want it all. Listen to this language. And here, you know, just, 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 just hear the language through this and the confession. As we see God calls us to this, he says, man, who's, who's going to follow and who's going to begin a task of building a tower who doesn't make sure he can finish, persevere? Who is not gonna, who's going to go to war not knowing if they can complete it and can win? And I want to confess to you this morning, I'm not always there, church. I'm not there. God is steering my heart in that direction, but I still choose self and personal desires so many times. But Jesus says his disciples will renounce all they have for the sake of following him. Look how he ends in verse, uh, look how he ends at the end there in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now listen to me this morning. This is not a plea to poverty or a calling to have no joy in things. This is absolutely not the point of Jesus' teachings. He is saying here that our grip on things has to be loose enough that we would be willing to go and do and give in any way that he calls us to. And through these two illustrations that he offers, we see that he said that for some, they will dive into the pursuit of Christ without counting the cost and they will stall out. They will not be able to persevere. And Jesus doesn't want this for you. He wants you to finish the race. He wants you to press on. He loves you and he knows what is best for you and he wants to give it to you. And so he says, follow me with all that you have. Now listen, for some of you, your schedule is so jam tight that no matter what God calls you to, the answer is no. For some of you, your finances have been so poorly stewarded and you have yourself in such a bind that if God says give, the answer is no. For some of you, your desire in life is so set and your plans so concrete that if God says go, the answer is no. Counting the cost tangibly looks like God. I know you love us more than anything else and so if you say the word, we will do it. That's someone who has counted the cost. So how does a family adopt kids when they already have a house full of them? Because they have counted the cost. How does a young couple with a young child move across the world to the Middle East to share the gospel in oftentimes isolation? Because they've counted the cost. How does a family walk through the loss of a job with such great joy and poise? Because they've counted the cost. How do people walk through seasons of death with such poise and faith? It's because they have counted the cost. I ask you this morning, have you counted the cost? Are you willing to renounce all things if called for the sake of following Jesus? Is he your source of hope and joy? 
Or are there things in life that you have such a tight grip on that God does not have access to those things? That you're unwilling to say, God, you can have anything else, but not this. This is ours. And God, through Jesus' words here, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, any one of you who has who does not say, God, you are ultimate and everything else is, is inferior to you. Anyone who is not in that place cannot be my disciple. Now he ends with a very stern challenge. And I wish I could say I was, I'm glad to get out of Luke 14, but I know Luke 15 is around the corner. He's gonna keep driving this home. But I wanna finish with this. Jesus ends with this very firm challenge He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use. It's not use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let me finish with this. He has challenged those who are around him. He's challenged the Pharisees. He's challenged the disciples. And he's challenged them with the, the condition of their heart. He said, my disciples will surrender their heart to me. My disciples will be those who have not elevated things above me. Good things. My disciples will be people that have denied self. They have offered a blank check of their life to him. And he goes on to say, listen, salt is good for a thousand uses. But he says, if your no, answer is no to his terms, or it is yes when it is convenient, but not all the time, then he says, at least in regards to salt, if that is the case, it is no longer of any worth. It no longer has a purpose. He says, it is not good for the soil, and it's not good for the manure pile. It's just thrown away. It is, if, if that is the condition... And that's the case. And Jesus says, listen, Jesus wants your heart. I plead with you this morning. Jesus wants your heart. This is not a plea of guilt for activity. He'll get the activity. He'll get the spice rack if he has your heart. So my question this morning for us, myself included, as we follow Jesus as the head of his church, as he teaches us this morning, are we willing to abandon all for the sake of following Jesus when he calls? We're willing to renounce all things if that's his calling on us. Now, I want you to see this morning that this is not a, a hierarchy of greater levels of followership of Jesus. This is not people that are called to, to give away physically all things and those who are called to do uh, other things. It's not saying one is more important than the other. This is all about Jesus saying, I want your heart. That's what I want. If I have it, then I know you'll be obedient to do whatever I've called you to do. So as a church, as individuals that make it up, may we be faithful to be willing to abandon all things for the sake of the gospel so that we may weigh the cost of discipleship and may we be found for Jesus as a good and faithful servant. Will you pray with me?